Matthew chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I'd like to thank you uh, not only for the invitation this morning to bring God's Word, but also uh, for your prayers for me when I was so very uh, ill with COVID. Uh, there's nothing like the prayers of the saints and to know that we are joined together in Jesus Christ. And uh, I stand before you uh, testifying our God is good. And he's been so amazing to me in restoring me to health that I can be before you this morning uh, to be able to preach uh, God's word to you. I'll be reading from verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. This is God's holy and inspired word. Please give it your full attention. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a, a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went out throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over all Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who suffer, suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you rejoicing on this, the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, we can gather together to worship you and to hear your word proclaimed. We do pray, O oh Lord, uh, that we would be those, uh, that we would turn away from those things that distract us so often, and we would turn our hearts and minds to you, O oh Lord. Uh, you are seated in the heavenlies, and that we would know, O oh Lord, that your word and your spirit is all-powerful. And we do pray, O oh Lord, that your word and spirit would have its work in our hearts, that we might die to sin and that we might live to righteousness, and that most of all, that we might behold Jesus, that one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen. This year marks the 100th anniversary of J. Gresham Machen's great book, Christianity and liberalism. Machen's writing of that book was in many ways similar to Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 
theses upon that door at Wittenberg that started the Protestant Reformation. At the beginning of the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church had gone corrupt. It no longer taught that justification was by faith alone and Christ alone, and the Lord raised up Luther to take a stand. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Presbyterian Church had started to decline. It was wavering on its devotion to the Word of God and to the historical person and work of Jesus Christ. And the Lord raised up J. Gresson Machen to take a stand. In Christianity and Liberalism, Machen argued that the attempts to modernize the Presbyterian Church had actually created a Jesus that was not the Jesus of the Bible. Instead of being the only hope of humanity, instead of being the only Lord and Savior of sinners, what was happening in the church was that theological liberalism was turning Jesus into an example. He was a nice guy. He was a really fine teacher. He was someone to follow. But salvation and Christianity, well, you know, don't get caught up with those old sayings about Jesus needing to go to the cross to die for your sins. Salvation is doing what Jesus would do. But as Machen pointed out in Christianity and Liberalism, there's a problem with this view. There's a problem with this view of Jesus and this view of salvation, and there is a problem with this view of Christianity. And that problem is sin. And it's our sin. Um, if the cleansing of our sin is left to our own efforts, if the cleansing of our sin is left to our following after Jesus and being as much like him as we could and God blessing us, then we're all doomed because we're sinners. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And as Martin Luther and the Reformers argued, the only way that we are cleansed from that is by the work of God. It's not our work. It is God's work that brings about our salvation. To put it in other words, salvation is not about our loving God and God seeing that and then in return blessing us with eternal life. Because of our sin, we never would love God. What has happened is God has loved us. And he has made himself known to us. And he has sent his son to die for us. And that has meant our salvation. And that's why J. Gresson Machen took a stand. Even though it meant his ultimately being cast out of the mainline Presbyterian church and being disenfranchised in the culture. But it was worth it. Because there is no gospel apart from Jesus Christ living a perfect life, dying an atoning death, and being raised from the dead. Now, this passage that we have read this morning 
is the one that Machen would preach at that time when he was writing this book and in the conflict that was taking place, this was the text that he would turn to. Because here we see that Jesus is not some mere example, that Jesus is the living Savior. But Machen also loved to note what we find in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because he had a passion for Christian living. You see, liberalism was claiming that Christianity was a life. And Machen was saying, yes, of course Christianity is a life. But you cannot remove doctrine, and you cannot remove the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because if you do so, then the life that you have left is not the Christian life of the Bible. And so this is the text that he would turn to here in Matthew's gospel. Now, in coming to this text this morning, it's helpful to put this passage in its context. Now, one way that you can divide up Matthew's gospel is to divide it into three main parts. And the first main part is from the beginning of the gospel to chapter 4, verse 16. And that section, we find out who Jesus is. Uh, we could label uh, this section the preparation to the public ministry of Jesus because we find out who Jesus is. He is the Son of God come in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. But then in verse 14, uh, 17 of chapter 4, you see then the second part of Matthew's gospel, and this goes on to chapter 16, verse 20. And here we find out what Jesus says or what Jesus proclaims. We find out here the nature of his ministry. So you could label this section the proclamation of the public ministry of Jesus. Then you have the last section of Matthew's gospel. And that goes from chapter 16, verse 21 to the end of the gospel. And that tells us what Jesus did. What did Jesus do for us? He went to the cross. So you could label this section his passion. So the first part is about who Jesus is. The middle part is about the proclamation that takes place in his ministry. And the third part is about his going to the cross, his passion. So the, the portion of scripture that uh, we have read this morning is right on the edge of the end of the first section, and it starts the second section. So, so here you have um, Matthew proclaiming to us that Jesus is the Messiah, he is Emmanuel, and one of the ways that he's doing this is he's ending up that first section is he's taking us back to the gospel or to the prophecy of Isaiah. And he quotes there uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Now, we see this in these verses uh, that lead up to our, our text today. But whenever you come to Scripture, I, I'll give you a little advice here, a little help if you're reading devotionally. Whenever you come to the New Testament and you see the New Testament writer or author quoting the Old Testament, 
what you should do is get out two Bibles or get out two ways that you can look at the text. First of all, look at how Matthew quoted the passage. Then go back to Isaiah chapter 9 and read what is actually there. This is what we find in Isaiah chapter 9 and being quoted here in Matthew 4. And in, in this is Matt, uh, Isaiah 9. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light shined. So that's the passage. But do you notice the difference if you had the two before you? Matthew has dropped a line. He has not repeated a line here when he comes and he's, and he's writing his gospel. And the line that he has dropped is staggering. The line that he has dropped is, is that in the latter times, the Lord has made the way glorious. So why doesn't he include that of who Jesus is. It's because he wants you to know that this is being fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. He's the one who brings in the latter times. He is the one who makes the way glorious. He is the one who is fulfilling this prophecy, and he is here. Now, friends, you don't say that about a nice guy. You don't say that about someone who's your example. You don't say that about someone who's going to be, a, a, you know, uh, helping you in regard to being a philosopher in this life or whatever. You say this only about the Son of God himself. That's what's happening here. The Son of God is on the scene. The long-awaited Messiah is on the scene. The one who makes the way glorious in the latter times is upon the scene. That's what's taking place here. He's the king. In other words, he is the king. And he has come. And then in verse 17, we find out what he says, the proclamation then of his ministry. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we get so used, and it's wonderful, uh, in regard to ordering our life around preaching. But have you ever really thought technically what preaching is? What preaching is, is the declaration of something. And so, that's taking place uh, here in verse 17. But there's also teaching. And teaching is detailed instruction about what's being proclaimed. And we see that in verse 23 of our text. So here is this preaching and this teaching. And what is being proclaimed is the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, 
if you were a Jew and you were hearing this and you were hearing Jesus say this, there would probably be mixed feelings. Because on the one hand, it's everything you've been waiting for. Uh, it, is the, the, it is the kingdom coming. On the other hand, boy, oh boy, you didn't think that the kingdom was going to be announced in this manner. What do I mean? What does Jesus say? He says, repent. And he's telling those hearing this message, both Jews and Gentiles, he's telling everyone who's hearing this message, you're not worthy to enter this kingdom. You need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to change your mind concerning who you are. You need to acknowledge that you're not worthy of this. The only ones who gain entrance into this kingdom are those who acknowledge they're not worthy of this kingdom. You need to change your mind concerning who I am and what I've come to do. So there's this great announcement then at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus concerning the kingdom. It's at hand. It's a reality. It is the fulfillment of the great messianic prophecies of Isaiah and other messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. But yet there's this, this command. Repent. Well, verse 18 tells us uh, that Jesus then saw two brothers and he calls them. And we start to see then how entrance into this kingdom comes about uh, because uh, there's this demand for repentance. But what we see then in the verses that follow is that Jesus is the one who also brings that supernatural word that changes hearts, that repentance and faith might take place. And so he sees these two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and he calls them. And he says with authority, follow me. You know, he's not issuing some invitation that's meek and mild. Uh, this is the king of glory. And he's speaking this word. And the word and the spirit works in these brothers' hearts. And immediately they drop their nets and they follow him. And then he calls another set of brothers, James and John, and their hearts are changed. And immediately they follow him, leaving their boat. We're then told after the calling of these two sets of brothers, verse 23, that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Um. And again, that's so very significant because here again we're being taught about uh, the kingdom. That it's not just a, uh, something that will be coming, but it's a present reality. And it is Jesus, it is Jesus who is all-powerful. And we have a glimpse here of the future salvation that will be coming with Jesus. That Jesus is the one that will make this kingdom visible. And he will draw many to himself. 
And he will do that by going to the cross. Um, it's a demonstration in preview that Satan's power has been broken. And Satan's power will be broken. Uh, do you recall what is said later in the Gospels about uh, the strong man being bound? Well, that's what Jesus has come to do. He has come to bound Satan. And that's exactly what has happened with Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising again uh, for our justification. Now, you might say, well, the world all around us, how can Satan be bound? Because we see all sorts of wickedness that breaks our hearts. Uh, well, what is meant in Scripture when Satan is bound, it's that he cannot stop the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth and the elect being drawn to the Lord. Uh, did you realize that prior to Jesus coming and prior to his ministry and his death and his resurrection that the gospel was limited to one nation on the earth? All the other nations around Israel were living in darkness. What has happened with the coming of Jesus Christ, he has brought in the latter times and he has made the way glorious and Satan is bound and there's nothing that Satan can do for the gospel going to the ends of the earth and Jesus' church being drawn to himself. That's the inbreaking of the kingdom and that is what has happened. And this is what is being previewed here in regard to the kingdom of heaven. That's what is before us. And again, say to you, that's not, uh, that's not something that just happens from the ground up on this earth by all of us trying to be good and following after Jesus. That is the supernatural work of God. Only God can do this. Um, you see, when J. Gresson Machen wrote Christianity uh, in Liberalism, uh, the Presbyterian Church had never been writing higher. <laughs> uh, it had two million members, but, but more than that, it had a ruling elder of the Presbyterian Church that had just led the nation through World War I. Woodrow Wilson was the son of a Presbyterian minister, and he was a ruling elder in the Presbyterian church. And the Presbyterian church just loved him and loved everything he stood for. But one of the things that Woodrow Wilson stood for was theological liberalism. And one of the ways that it played out in regard to the United States, is that when the United States was victorious in the war, Woodrow Wilson wanted to put those principles into action in a League of Nations proposal uh, to convert the world. He even put in the language of the League of Nations uh, proposal that this was about the Christianizing of the world and how all nations would work together 
and to relieve pain and suffering, um, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church approved the League of Nations proposal. <laughs> the irony of ironies, it was the United States Senate that turned it down. During that time, J. Gresson Machen thought that this was a terrible thing. And it wasn't because he didn't want to relieve suffering or pain or help other nations. It was because this proposal wanted nothing to do with the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It wanted nothing to do with a message of repentance. It wanted nothing to do with a church that proclaims the word of God and tells people they're sinners and the only hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ. And see, that was the conflict that was taking place. And it's a conflict that we still live with today. If you want to change this world uh, apart from the cross, you don't need a supernatural Savior and a supernatural work. You just need to seek to follow after Jesus the best you can. But if you know that you're dead in trespasses and sins, then you know that you have no option. Your only hope is in Jesus. See, that's what the Presbyterian conflict was about. And that's, uh, I rejoice that those who preceded you here, and many of you, even at the start, that's why a church like Bethel takes a stand. You know that you have no hope apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know that you have no hope apart from God coming to do what you cannot do for yourself. You know you have no hope unless he is the Jesus of the Bible. And these things are worth dying for. But as I said at the beginning, Machen didn't just stop at uh, Matthew chapter 4, but he would often go into ch Matthew chapter 5. Why? Because um, there you find Jesus going up on the mount. And what does Jesus immediately say? Um, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean for we who know that Jesus Christ is our only hope, for those who seek to confess right doctrine and stand by the word of God? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? It first means, Machen would say, having a broken heart, coming to an end of ourselves, never being arrogant, never being haughty, having a broken heart. That stands at the beginning of Christianity. So on the one hand, yes, we took a stand over against liberalism and continue to do so in its many forms. But, uh, May we never be arrogant. May we always be humble. May we lay down our lives for others. 
May we love one another, knowing that this is how Christ has loved us. And may we have a witness then in the community that stands by the word of God, stands by the historical personal work of Jesus Christ, because that is our only hope. But yet we're humble. We're not arrogant. You see, uh, again, uh, when it came to the press train conflict and when it comes today, it's not just liberal sin. It's our sin. We need to repent. We need to humble ourselves before the living God. We need to be the those who acknowledge every day that we are not worthy of this gift. And we have been blessed with the greatest treasure. And I say to you, if that marks you by the word of God, if you stand by the Jesus of the Bible in that manner, you'll be salt and light. Because you're going to go the opposite direction of the world. And that is so powerful. But yet you know that you can only go the opposite direction of the world with the Lord leading you. That you can't do this of your own strength. It's only being joined by faith to Jesus Christ and living out of that union with him uh, and seeking after him with, with your whole heart. That's my prayer for you here at Bethel Church that you would live in a manner that brings glory to your God by living out of your union with Jesus Christ in which you acknowledge every day that Jesus Christ is your only hope in this world and in the one to come. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you again for your word. Help us to be a people of the word. Help us to love you. Oh Lord, we know that we are undeserving of your love. May we be amazed, truly, that you have poured such love out upon us. Help us, O oh Lord, again, to die to sin. Help us to live to righteousness and help us to love one another. We do pray, Lord, that you would be a Pastor Hammond. Uh, strengthen him from above. Uh, bless him. Be with him. Be with his family. Help him, O oh Lord, uh, to seek after you with his whole heart, and that, that will come to expression in his preaching of the word here. We do pray, Lord, for our elders who give themselves in, in rule. May they have shepherds' hearts. Be with our deacons who serve. Be with our Sunday school teachers. Be with our worship uh, leaders. Be with those, O oh Lord, who give uh, in every way. We pray, Lord, uh, for every member of this congregation. Help us, O oh Lord, to gather together, to join together in the bonds of Christ, to show forth how much, O oh Lord, uh, we love you because we know that we owe everything to you. And bless not only uh, this church, but bless the Presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic. We're thankful for the, the body of churches that are joined together with us, but we pray not only for those churches in the OPC, but we pray for all Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, Christ-affirming churches. We do pray, O oh Lord, that we would take great comfort that the word has gone forth this day, and there's nothing that Satan can do to stop the building of the church. 
We do thank you, O Lord, for that great assurance in your word that you are building your church. We do pray, O Lord, that we would take great comfort in that, that we would know that Jesus Christ is reigning. And as he's reigning, he's bringing all things to completion. And he's doing so according to his perfect plan. Help us, O Lord, to trust in our Savior and help us to rejoice in the salvation that is found in him. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.